right. Merry Christmas, everybody. Good to see you here. We're in Matthew chapter 1. We're looking at the miraculous birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. So that's the first book of the New Testament. So why don't you go ahead and open up there. We are going to read the section together. This is Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. If you're physically able to stand with us, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 1, we start in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.19. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for all the precious souls who have braved the rain here in Southern California, (laughs) somewhat rare. But thank you for the rain, and your word is like rain in Isaiah 55, coming down, watering our souls, bringing new growth, new insights, new blessing, new refreshment, manna for today, Lord. But it's not just for today, because it has dividends beyond today. And we are here to hear from you. We want to grow in our most holy faith. We want to become more like our king, And we want to represent the kingdom of God more in the way that we live, the way that we preach, the way that we respond. Joseph is such a wonderful kingdom example. And I pray that you would give us both the insights into the theology today, but also into the practical application, which will uh, be here in the text as well. And I pray that we'd please you, Lord, in the way that we both teach and respond to the word of God. May you be glorified. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. So last week, we looked at the uh, gracious credentials of the king. We looked at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You could say his family tree. And we saw some really interesting, surprising names in the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, several Gentile women are in his genealogy. And we found out that Jesus comes from the line of Judah. Judah is the kingly line, and we know that uh, Judah was one of the sons of Jacob, and we'll get into that in a second. And so we've moved down, uh, we looked at the first 17 verses, we looked at those generations leading up to this moment, and if you look back just for a second in verse 16 of the genealogy, we are now uh, getting close to Joseph, and it says, Jacob, 116 of Matthew was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. We noted that he's not called the father of Jesus. He's not the biological father, but 
He was the husband of Mary and will become the adoptive legal father of Jesus. More in a moment. By whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ or the Messiah. We said we could render that the king. And then we have the outline of the generations in verse 17. I had a precious young lady in the congregation say to me when we studied the credentials of Jesus last time, the family tree, that she was a little surprised that Jesus didn't come from the line of Old Testament Joseph, but rather from the line of Judah. Now, the Old Testament Joseph, many of you are familiar with this story. It unfolds in Genesis 37, taking us all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. And the marvelous story of Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers because of jealousy, ends up in Egypt, becomes the uh, amazing leader. Uh, the family of Jacob ends up flowing down to Egypt and being saved as a result of Joseph. And his famous words ring through the corridor of times, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. And this young lady said, you know, the way Joseph pictures Jesus, the way he responded uh, to d difficult circumstances, you would think that Jesus would come from Joseph's line, but he comes from Judah's line. Interestingly enough, when you go back to Genesis 37 through 50, you find that there's one interruption in the Old Testament Joseph story, and the one interruption is to tell the story of Judah, how Judah slept with his daughter-in-law, who was dressed as a prostitute, and she did this basically to spite him and to to have something be accomplished that he failed to do. It's a long story. You can listen to last week's uh, version of it. But bottom line is that's the only interruption in the, in the Joseph story is Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law and producing these twins who are also in the line of Jesus. And we talked about last week that this could be, you know, fodder for an afternoon talk show, maybe a couple months worth of episodes, all in the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus. But as we study his genealogy and as we get close to the birth narrative, we find that Joseph, the New Testament Joseph, is the father, the legal father of Jesus, not his biological father. So it got me thinking a little bit to Old Testament Joseph, because that's who New Testament Joseph is named after. And here's the story. It's in the book of Genesis. We'll take just a quick detour uh, to the first book of our Bibles. We're going to go to chapter 30. Let me just paint the picture quickly for you. So what's happened is Jacob has married two different women. His true love was Rachel. We're going to go to Genesis 30, verse 23. But Uncle Laban snuck in Leah on the wedding night, and Jacob was connived, and he had been a conniver, and it came back to bite him. And so Leah was unloved, but still married to Jacob, and she was able to produce several offspring, including a daughter, but several sons. And Rachel was loved by Jacob. She was his true love, but she was barren. And so her sister was able to produce children. She was not. In that culture, it was really seen as a terrible thing that you couldn't uh, have children. So finally, Rachel, Jacob's true love, conceives. It's in Genesis 30, 23. It says, so she conceived Rachel did and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. Genesis 30, 24. She named him Joseph. This is Old Testament Joseph, not the, not the father of Jesus, saying, may the Lord give me another son. 
And uh, now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, send me away, and off they go. So Joseph is the firstborn son to Rachel, Jacob's true love. And her uh, naming Joseph, the revealing of his name is right in the verse. It's in verse 24. Give me another son is the meaning of Joseph's name. If you ever wondered what his name means, it actually literally means the Lord will add or the Lord has added or you could say Yahweh has added. And what Rachel's thinking of in this setting is that she would like another son to bless Jacob. And she will have another son later in her life. That's recorded in Genesis 35. If you flip over there for a second. Genesis chapter 35. So here's the, the journey that they're on. Uh, verse 16 of Genesis 35. Then they journeyed from Bethel. This is the family of Jacob. And when there was still some distance to go to Aphrath, Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, verse 17, Genesis 35, don't fear, don't be afraid, for now you have another son. You could say the Lord has added. And it came about as her soul was departing. Interesting description of death. When you die, your soul departs from your body. When her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Hanin. So Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow. Ben-Hanin means son of my right hand. You could say my favorite son or my favorite son. And so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is, what's your Bible say? Bethlehem. And what's interesting about this scene is as we go back and we look at the name of Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, well, he, his name means the Lord has added. His brother, his little brother that's born, who's the final son of Jacob by four different women here, the second son from Rachel, means son of my right hand. I want you to think about this, that the Lord has added is the name of Jesus' legal father and son of my right hand is his brother. And the artistry of the Holy Spirit is so beautiful here because the Lord adds the Messiah into humanity. When Jesus became uh, human, he didn't subtract his deity. He added the additional nature of humanity. That's one insight into who he is. But the Lord in Joseph's life added so many things. He added to him a beautiful wife named Mary. He added to him the son of God that he got to care for at least the first 12, 13 years of his life. That's as far as the record goes. Joseph got to watch him go to sleep, got to teach him things, got to uh, experience life raising the son of God, Yahweh, added. But in the birth narrative, and just to round out the picture, the son of my right hand, you know that over and over again, our Bible say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. He's at the right hand of God making intercession. On Wednesday, when Alex shared the message with us about the deity of Christ, he referenced Psalm 110. 
In Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I believe that there's a beautiful artistry being painted here in the name Joseph connecting to Old Testament Joseph. The Lord has added and the son of my right hand. And interestingly enough, when the son of Rachel's right hand, or I should say Jacob's right hand is born, Rachel dies in Bethlehem, giving birth to the son of Jacob's right hand, but pointing to the greater son seated at the right hand of God. Amazing, isn't it? This is the beautiful artistry of the Bible. Now, if you go to the book of Matthew and you read the account in Matthew 1.18, now a transition word, the birth of Jesus Christ happened in this way. The Greek word means this is how it unfolded. And Matthew is telling the story from Joseph's perspective. Luke, his large focus is on Mary. Matthew's large focus is on Joseph, establishing the royal right to the throne. And he introduces this section of the miraculous birth that many of us have heard probably many times with the word now. This is how Jesus was born. You've seen his family tree. Now let's talk about how he came into the world. The birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus, his name, Christ, his title, if you will, was as follows. It happened in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that's the Joseph of the New Testament, before they came together, literally before the two became one in intimacy and marriage on their uh, wedding night, if you will, she was found to be with child. Pause there. She's betrothed to Joseph. In Jewish culture, a betrothal period would happen uh, for about a year. And here's what would happen. The two fathers typically would get together uh, most of the marriages were arranged marriages. The two dads would work out a dowry, the, the price for the bride's hand. They would negotiate that, and then they would write a contract. And my understanding is that vows would be even exchanged at this early point. And when you were betrothed to someone, unlike modern engagement in our day, betrothal basically meant you were married. You were already in covenant. It just had not yet been consummated. The only way to break a betrothal was through divorce. So you may wonder, well, why is at this point Joseph called the husband of Mary? They're not yet married in the account. Well, that's because in betrothal, you were already considered to be a spouse. You could only break it by a legal divorce. There was very little social contact in this year between the prospective groom and bride. And of course, it would be unheard of that the bride-to-be would be pregnant in the betrothal period because the wedding, the marriage was to be consummated on the wedding night and not before. It was expected, of course, that the girl would be a virgin on that night. And now, as the betrothal period has been happening, word comes that Mary is with child before they came together. Now, in today's day and age, none of us would be shocked. This is the, the major theme of many uh, shows and movies, right? Adultery, children out of wedlock. We can even go back to the story of David and how he got Bathsheba pregnant and that whole ugly scene. We know that this does happen. But from Joseph's perspective, he had made a commitment to this young lady 
The families had agreed. There were expectations. And all of a sudden, Joseph finds out that she is with child. And he doesn't know what we know. We know that a supernatural event has occurred in history that's been prophesied, but Joseph doesn't know that. He just knows that his wonderful bride-to-be is with child and he hasn't touched her. And so what scoundrel has touched her? What has she done? My name may mean the Lord has added, but it sure seems like the Lord has taken away. What do I do now? If those last words of verse 18 were not revealed to you, what would you do if your bride-to-be was with child and you hadn't touched her? On a human level, there's only one conclusion. Mary's been unfaithful, and Joseph has to think, I'm in a lose-lose situation. I don't know what to do, but I have just found out that the woman of my dreams is pregnant with a child that's not mine. What do I do now? And so what we do know is that we have really good relieving news at the end of the verse because the child that is in her has been conceived, read the end of verse 18 with me, by, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And it's at this point that some people, maybe moderns, but it doesn't have to be contemporary, minds might say, ah, come on. A virgin birth? Can I ask you a question? Is a virgin birth any more miraculous than a resurrection from the dead? Is a virgin birth any more miraculous than God saying, let there be light, and there was light? God is a creator. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 1-2 that when the words of creation were spoken, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, Genesis 1-2, and then God said, and stuff started happening. And the Holy Spirit is the one who orchestrates, or he is the agency by which the body of the Messiah is formed in the womb of Mary. Now, the forming of a child in the womb is miraculous to begin with. But this has been supernatural. And the reason is because Jesus must be the sinless lamb. He cannot inherit the Adamic nature or the, the uh, he can't have the sin nature, if you will. So there is no seed of man involved. It is God working in the womb of Mary to produce the sinless son of God. And that is why he can then die as the sinless son of God for our sin. And of course, he is the divine son of God, so he never sinned. But this is the point, part of the point of the story is to tell us something supernatural has occurred. It is the virgin birth, and the Bible calls upon us to believe. In Luke chapter 1, when Mary is getting information about this happening, if you turn over there, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 1, in the birth narratives, little longer treatments of these stories in Luke's gospel Here's what Mary is told. An angel also appears to her. Luke 1, verse 30, tells her, Don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Luke 1, 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
His kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Some see here the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the Most High, and the Son. I'll let you consider that. But you can see it's through the agency of the Holy Spirit. He would overshadow Mary's womb, taking us back to the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2 at creation, overshadowing the tabernacle and then the temple as the Shekinah glory would come down and God's presence would be there, overshadowing the Mount of Transfiguration when the shadow or the cloud was there and the Lord spoke about his beloved son, the power of God, the power of God that hovered over the early church in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost and appeared as tongues of fire and the Holy Spirit came upon the church and they spoke with tongues and manifested supernatural gifts. Same idea. The Holy Spirit didn't simply get to work in Jesus's life at his baptism the Holy Spirit was working at the very beginning, even in the forming of Jesus in the womb of Mary. In fact, the Holy Spirit had been working in Jesus' life the whole time. And here, he comes in a special, creative, majestic way. And the virgin birth of the Messiah occurs. God made the physical universe. He has no problem with a virgin birth. And so... Joseph, uh, her husband, not knowing what we know, if you go back to Matthew's account, Matthew 1, verse 19, was a righteous man. If you uh, do a little study on the idea of being a righteous man, there are people who say the best way to characterize Joseph is that he was a Torah-abiding man. We might say a law-abiding man. What does that mean? In this culture, he really cared about the law of God. He tried to live his life by the Torah, by the law. And Joseph, her husband, once again, not the father of Jesus, but Mary's husband, he was a righteous man. He was moral, upright, law-abiding, cared about the law of God. He didn't want to disgrace Mary, so he desired, knowing what he knew at the moment, to put her away secretly. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.8 that above all, we're to keep Fervent in our love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. It's a good thing that Joseph didn't go directly to social media. <laughs> you won't believe what happened to me, friends. I was engaged to this girl, and she is pregnant and tells me something supernatural has happened. <laughs> Before you go to social media, you may want to wait. And even though Joseph had every reason to be angry, upset, if he were to carry out the technical uh, consequence in the Torah, the law, what would happen to Mary? She dies for adultery. But she has a baby in her womb. What should Joseph do? It's a very complicated situation, isn't it? 
And life can throw complicated situations at us quite often. And I will just say this to you, that what we see in Joseph is a kingdom response. We are the kids of the king. We've inherited a royal priesthood. We, are, we belong to a different kingdom and thus we should respond differently to situations. Spurgeon writing on this section said, even if we have something difficult to do, we should do it as kindly as we can, as tenderly as we can, lest when we fall on our face, someone would kick us when we're down. Now, this is all Joseph knows. This is all the information he's got. The girl I love and I was gonna marry is pregnant. What now? And he's a righteous man. He knows what the law says, but he wanted to do it as secretly as possible. I read one commentator who said that if the Torah was carried out, they would stand Mary in a, uh, basically in a pile of manure because of adultery, take rocks and stone her until she died and fell face down in that manure pile. The, the penalty was clear. But Joseph didn't want to disgrace her. That is a kingdom response. And with all the stuff that goes on in our culture, people are so quick to want to run people down. They'll get on social media and they'll run you down like they would never do to your face. But Joseph was a righteous man. And he didn't want to disgrace her. And our heart should be, we don't want to disgrace anyone. And so he wanted to put her away secretly. The phrase put her away is a divorce phrase. To release her, dismiss her, it's commonly used in the idea of divorce. And so he thought to himself, well, I guess what I'll do is try to find a way to do this behind the scenes and let her go. But Joseph is about to get some news that is beautiful news. God was at work. And Joseph, instead of having to put Mary away uh, secretly, was considering this, verse 20, and the phrase considering verse 20 of Matthew 1 means he was pondering it. He was revolving it in his mind. I think it has the implication he was probably praying. Maybe some of his prayers were a lot like ours sometimes when stuff happens. Why God? I don't understand. Why has this happened? What, what was deficient in me? Maybe all of that stuff. Why has this happened? But he pondered it. I'm... I'm going to say that he was probably praying and he got a kingdom provision. If you're taking notes, a kingdom response, a kingdom provision. In a dream, as he was probably having a tough time sleeping and thinking about all the implications, how do I explain this? How do I go about this? Who do I talk to? What do I do? An angel of the Lord, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't forget your royal lineage. Don't be afraid. Oftentimes when we're mulling something over, fear can often dictate our response to things. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. You never want fear to drive your decision making. And so Joseph pondered, prayed, 
and a provision came. There's a dear family. Uh, I did the wedding of uh, a wonderful young couple about seven, eight years ago. And uh, a family member passed away recently. And uh, I talked to one of the family members and we were talking about the service. And this was last Sunday afternoon. I spent some time on the phone with him. And we were talking a little bit about what scripture to, to share and where the Lord would have us on that day. And next day, uh, I played a little golf and I got in my car, it was about two in the afternoon. My, my radio station was on K-Wave, which I don't typically listen to. I usually listen to KKLA. But I happened to change it over to K-Wave for something I was listening to, and I just left it. And I got in my car, it was a little after two in the afternoon, and I'd been thinking about this service and what would the Lord have to share, what scripture is a very tough situation. And... Uh, Dr. Dobson on uh, Family Talk is interviewing a lady. Her name is Dee, and she's just written a, a book, her latest book of many. She's talking about the death of her husband. And her husband was an orthopedic surgeon, a medical missionary, a really good man who was taken too young, we would say. And she was talking about his death. And Dr. Dobson said, did you ever question God when he died? Like, why? And she said, I have to be honest, she said, at the beginning, I did question God because he was such a good man serving the Lord on the mission field. She goes, there's so many lousy doctors, so many lousy husbands. Why did he have to take my husband? But she said, then I realized I, I know that the Lord knows what he's doing. And in Isaiah, it says that the Lord takes some people early to spare them from the calamity to come. And I went, and I felt a holy nudge. I would just tell you, there's times in my life when I'm praying about something and I'm thinking about something and the Lord sets up a scenario where he answers my prayer and I just know. Can you resonate with that? And in my car that Monday afternoon, I, I was like, that's it. That's what you want me to share at this memorial service. And I was like, yep. So I went over there. I had, I've taught through all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah and, and gone through the book many times, but I hadn't re really remembered this passage. It's Isaiah 57, 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there, but here's what it basically says. It says that sometimes God takes people, we'll say early, to spare them from the calamity to come. In the, in the chapter, Isaiah is basically talking about the sin of Israel, the sin of Judah, and he delineates all this sexual sin. Sexual sin is, is out in the open, in the face of everybody. And I was thinking, ding, 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 ding. Modern application to America. Yes, it's all there. And then at the end, of, but in the first few verses, it talks about this person that's taken early. It's to spare them from the evil to come and they enter into God's rest. Beautiful passage. It's probably where we get the idea of rest in peace. They enter into God's peace. And then at the end of the chapter, there's a little bit more encouragement after some really hard stuff. And I just tell you, brethren, I got a kingdom provision. And I knew what to share. I knew what to say. I knew that the Lord had directed it. I pray that it comforted the family. Joseph needed a kingdom provision. Several of the ladies were, how many of you were at the Christmas luncheon? Raise your hand if you went to that, ladies. Um, Nadine Spradley, who's been a missionary that we've supported for a lot of years, spent a quarter of a century in Macedonia 
uh, reaching out to those folks there. And she t- tells a story. Uh, my wife kind of summarized the story for me. They were coming home. Uh, they, di- they didn't really have the funding to, to go out on the mission field or continue on the mission field. And a friend of hers had frequent flyer miles and gave her the miles to fly to her friend and spend the weekend with her. And basically what ended up happening is that somehow uh, it was a middle seat that Nadine had been given on this flight. And you know how we all love middle seats, right? In between two strangers. And so she was going to change the seat, but she kept getting distracted or whatever, forgot about it. And so she just had to deal with the middle seat. And she got on the plane, sat down. There was nobody there for a while. You know how we're all always hopeful. Oh, Lord, let the other two people not show up in Jesus' name. (laughs) It never works. Because there they were, two men on either side of her. And she thought to herself, okay, I'll just keep to myself and, you know, look at my stuff, look at, read. Well, the one man started talking on the window seat. And, uh, Anyway, he started saying how he's the CEO of this company and he was talking about himself and uh, on and on he went and Nadine's like, oh, great, you know. And then uh, he said, well, what do you do? And she was like, ah, this will probably end the conversation. (laughs) She said, I'm a missionary. He goes, you are? My company's just been praying about supporting a new missionary. We have money set aside and get, get this, after it's all said and done and they exchange information, this man's company funds the entire need that they had to be on the mission field. Wow. That is a kingdom provision. I'll say to you, there's oftentimes when my prayers for a provision, when they go up to heaven, I will tell you many times they are relatively weak. Sometimes they're very short. Uh, oftentimes I don't pray in King James English. Would thou renderest the heavens and breakest through to be the provisionist that I need? I, I just sometimes say, oh Lord, would you help me? Uh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't even know why I'm the guy that you have going to these kinds of things, but here I am, Lord. You know, those are often my prayers and I find My king is so gloriously providing what I need. Now, he doesn't always do it in the time that I need it, (laughs) or the timing, I should say, that I I think I need it. But here's what happens. Whenever I'm doing something for the Lord, he is so awesome to provide. And so, you know, Joseph was thinking, Things have been taken away. Things have been taken away. No, Joseph. The Lord adds. You know what he's going to add to you? A beautiful wife. And you are going to get to be the adoptive father of the Messiah. Listen to the words. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added. The Lord adds. But Joseph, on a human plane, he was like, I I don't get it. I don't understand. And the angel came and said, essentially, God is at work, Joseph. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget your royalty. You come from that royal regal line. Don't be afraid. Let me just 
say to some of you who are listening, some who may be watching, don't, don't be afraid. You come from a royal line if you're a Christian. And you can have a kingdom response. And the angel said, she, Mary, verse 21, will bear a son. And you shall call his name Yeshua. The Hebrew is Yeshua, the Greek, Jesus. That's his name. By the way, uh, when you named a child, the father would name the child, and the father would typically name the child on the day of the circumcision, which was the eighth day. And to give the child a name was essentially, in Joseph's case, to legally adopt Jesus into the royal line. This is part of what's at stake here. Joseph accepts Jesus as his adoptive son, naming him, and thus adopting him. And Joseph, uh, or Jesus now, comes under his uh, legal uh, parentage in terms of Joseph's role. You shall call him Yeshua. His name is right here. Yeshua means Yahweh saves, and his name, which is quite typical when you... uh, Look up meanings of names. They're often right in the verse. For it is he, Jesus, who will, what? Save his people from their sins. If you want to know what Christmas is all about, there it is. Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. Good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And now Joseph is being told, okay, this is what's going on. This is the holy moment. This has been the grand anticipation of the ages for the Jewish nation, but it will be for all people. And Joseph, you will get to adopt him. The Lord has added God has added so much to my life in so many amazing ways by making me a child of the king, a child of the kingdom, and blessing my life. And I'm sure that you could come up here and tell us about your blessings as well. He will come into the world to save. He rescues from sin and death. One scripture, just to write down, Revelation 1, 5, and 6 From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, all God's people said. Amen. That's Revelation 1, 5, and 6. Now, all this took place, Matthew 1, 22, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Let's pause. Do you see, if you want to understand how the Bible is inspired, it's right here in verse 22. There was a prophecy spoken. The origin of the prophecy was the Lord. Notice, beginning of 22. It came through the channel of the prophet. And it was a prophecy that might be fulfilled in this setting. And it said this, Behold, The virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son. You can see the virgin birth there. The son that we've been talking about 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel. If you wondered, Emmanuel is more of a symbolic name. And Matthew gives us the translation of the name. It means God with us. We'll come back to that in a second. Emmanuel could be seen as a name or a title. Maybe the best modern description of it is if we called the leader of the U.S. Mr. President, uh, that would be maybe a good way to understand Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not his actual name, but it reveals a couple things about Jesus. One, his nature. He is God with us. He is divine and human uh, in the Son of God. And he is also God with us in the sense that he said in the Great Commission, go out into all the world, uh, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. God with us. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. God with us. He is God, but he's also with the people of his kingdom. He's Emmanuel. The original prophecy was spoken to Isaiah or through Isaiah to a king named Ahaz. Ahaz was a wicked king. I won't get into all the story, but he wouldn't believe God. He wouldn't ask God. He wouldn't trust God. And he is the contrast to the great king, Jesus. The government will ultimately rest on Jesus' shoulders, not Ahaz. And for that matter, not any other political leader. We will not find what we're looking for in any political leader. Save Jesus. Here's why. Because they're all human. And they all have feet of clay. And some are better than others, no doubt. But one day, uh, as Isaiah celebrates it two chapters later, he says a, son will be, a child will be born to us, a son will be given up to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's the one who will carry us. That's the one who will be the ultimate king. He will literally be God with us. And that's the greater fulfillment of Isaiah 7, although there's also an immediate fulfillment in the life of Isaiah the prophet. There are five Old Testament scriptural fulfillments in the birth narratives. All you Bible students are going to want to write these down. Matthew 1, 22 and 23, a prophecy from the book of Isaiah right before us. Matthew 2, 5 and 6, a prophecy from the book of Micah. When the three wise men come, where's the king to be born? A quotation comes forth from Micah. In Matthew 2.15, if you peek ahead for a second, Matthew 2.15, it says, out of Egypt I called my son, a prophecy from the book of Hosea. Later on in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, there's a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah. And then finally, at the very end of chapter 2, verse 23, this could be a combination of prophets that Jesus would be called the Nazarene or a Nazarene. This was to fulfill, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill. Remember that Matthew's main target audience is Jewish and Matthew is doing something that we would call apologetics. But in this case, knowing that the Jewish audience would look 
to substantiate Jesus' claim to be the Messiah from Old Testament prophecy lists five prophecies from at least four different prophets. Uh, Isaiah writing 700 years before the time of Christ. Hosea, Jeremiah, Micah. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. And therefore, he makes the apologetic argument that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Christ. And so Joseph gets the word about who this child is, and he rises up from his sleep, 24. Let me just say a word. Um, it, it is possible that God can speak to us in our dreams. I don't think that it's the norm, but nothing is outside of God's providence. And it is interesting that the Old Testament Joseph knew something about dreams as well, right? So maybe there's a connection there, but God can get to us whenever, wherever he wants I have joked in the past that maybe he speaks to some people in dreams because they don't do well when they're awake. <laughs> that is, they don't listen when they're awake. I don't know why a dream, but that's how the word got to Joseph. And Joseph knew that it was the Lord. I would be very careful about dreams, but since it's here in the text, I would just tell you, God can speak that way. The primary way, of course, he speaks to us is through his word. So Joseph gets up. And he gives us a kingdom obedience. We've got a kingdom response, a kingdom uh, provision, and a kingdom obedience because he got up and he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife. Uh, in church history, they called Joseph, the legal father of Jesus, quiet Joseph. Do you know why? There's never a word recorded that Joseph spoke in the Bible, not one. By the way, it doesn't mean that Joseph never said anything. <laughs> However, they call him quiet Joseph because not one word is ever recorded that he spoke. And would to God that we did a little bit more obeying and less talking. Amen? <laughs> and that's Joseph. Joseph could have had a whole litany of things that he could have asked like, uh, wait a minute, before the dream's over, can we get some qualifications, small print? How do I handle this? How do we talk to her parents? How do we talk to my parents? What about our friends? What about our cousins? What about when we get together at Christmas? I mean, Hanukkah, what do we say? When her tummy gets a little bigger, what do we do? Who's gonna believe this? I would have a hundred questions. Nothing. Joseph gets up and obeys. And he takes Mary as his wife. And you can imagine the relief that must have been on both of their hearts. So much, I'm sure, anxiety and pressure. But the Lord provided. And he kept her a virgin. The virgin birth of Christ is re-emphasized at the end of the birth narrative. Until she gave birth to a son. So they were not together. No intimacy until Jesus was born. And he called his name Yeshua. Jesus saves. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the beauty of the miraculous birth narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing moment 
in history. In fact, this event really has dated the calendar of the world. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, incarnated supernaturally. And that baby grew up to be that man. That man who no one ever preached like he preached. No one ever touched people the way he touched them. Miracle after miracle. Signs and wonders. There was no doubt who he was. The only ones that rejected him were the ones that were either hard-hearted or were afraid of him as a threat. And he touched so many. And then this king of glory went to that awful cross. Many have said he was born in the shadow of the cross. He came to save, and the only way he could save is by shedding his blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And he's the ultimate payment for my sins, Father. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus, your great gift to the world. Thank you, Jesus, for dying giving yourself up for me, for us. What can we say? What can we say about this king of glory? Thank you for not only nailing our sins to the cross, but rising from the dead, defeating our mortal enemy. One day, death will be no more. You've secured so much for us, God. Help us to give you our best. Keep your head and heart bowed just for a moment. Have you opened the most awesome gift at Christmas? Have you received Jesus as your king, your savior, your God? Do you keep your head and heart bowed? I think if you haven't, you'll know. And if you have, you'll know. This would be a wonderful time to just tell him, Lord, I believe. Jesus, thank you for coming into this broken world on a rescue mission, pray it if it's you. Thank you for dying on that terrible cross for me and rising from the dead just like you said you would. Thank you for the miracle of Christmas. I turn away from my sin and I place my trust in you. Please forgive me, save me, make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're a prodigal and it's been a while since you've been thinking about kingdom realities, but your heart is stirred and you want to come back home. He's so gracious and so good to us. And I just encourage you to lay your life down afresh, rededicate yourself. And if you're a saint and you've been fighting the good fight, I pray that there would be refreshment from the Holy Spirit, that the manna that has come forth today would strengthen your soul you would know how much you are loved and how much the king values you no matter what's going on in your life. Father, let your fresh living waters flow over your precious people. I pray all of that in the mighty and matchless name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We're